So, Lucas, I think we need to start a new weekly segment where we talk about the newest lens you've purchased. <laughs> because it seems like it's weekly occurrence. <laughs> It'll be, I mean, a weekly segment. <laughs> not that far off. It's not, it's not that bad. I swear, it's not that bad. It's just like, it's just it's, it's like two, and I didn't even buy one of those myself. <laughs> so, <laughs> which which one do you want to know about, Daniel? Well, I, I, I mean, I know what the choices are, but our listeners don't know what the choices are. Have so. I? I thought I did. I have I not talked about the twenty three one point four? I don't know if you did or not. You might have mentioned. I think did, you did mention that you got that one. Did I? I think you might have mentioned mm, that. Well, if I didn't, well, yeah. Why don't you just? Give but us, didn't give just us a recap. Because I know everyone's dying to know. Lucas, you bought a 23 millimeter lens, but I thought you had a 30 millimeter lens. Why do you need both? Well, you see, I had a 35, and then I sold it, and then I got bedazzled into a 30 millimeter. And then I realized the 30 millimeter just isn't what I'm looking for. And I was looking for a little more of that Fuji magic. And so I sold my 30 millimeter and my 85 millimeter, and I bought the 23 1.4 original with the clutch and everything i did talk about this because i remember making you pop the clutch that's right and do it on mic and be like "Mm." that's right i remember that okay okay yep well i've been using it been shooting a lot with it we went on a trip recently and i made i changed my presets on my on my xh2s and i set c1 2 and 3 to film simulation recipes Mm. so i have one that's oh boy this is so bad I sound like such a Fuji bro right now. I can't help it. I just love it so much. It's who you are. It's just, anyways. I said one of them is Porta 400. One of them is uh, Kodachrome, like the song. And then one of them is Ektachrome. And I shot a lot with the Kodachrome, but I was shooting on the 23. And there was some pictures where I almost got like a little bit of a swirly bokeh. And I thought mm-hmm. that was interesting. Because you, you have the old one. Mm-hmm, I have the old one. So it's one. got more character to character, it. Character, exactly. And uh, I took a picture of myself in a because like 23 is just wide enough that if you hold your arm all the way out, you can take a selfie. Uh, 35, you can't do that. 23, you can. So uh, I did that and I had a white shirt on and there is chromatic aberration on the edge of my white shirt. Like if you zoom in at 800%, you can see a little magenta line mm. in the contrast between the bright white and the the ground behind me. And I was like, man, this lens isn't perfect, but it's perfect in my heart. <laughs> I mean, it's part of it's part of being a Fuji shooter, right? Right. Well, I mean, like the like it's it's the reason to get the new 23. The new 23 yeah. is like a lot of that problem, those problems are solved. So, like it's not perfect. Like the bokeh isn't exactly, you know, perfect as far as out of focus regions and uh, there is a little bit of chromatic aberration, but uh, like the pictures I've been taking with it, it's still wide enough that like I can get away with it being the only lens I have on the camera, which is kind of why I bought it, and it's definitely working. Nice, but it's long enough that if I take a picture of a person, I get that background separation and that background blur, mm-hmm. and it looks like super creamy and cool. awesome. Like it has that that Fuji look that I'm looking for that I get out of the 16 millimeter. So. Man. Okay. So you're pretty happy with it. I'm really happy with it. I do not regret buying it. I'm glad that you talked me into it. <laughs> and I would say, you know, eight out of ten for that lens, uh, you know, loses a point because it's not it is not optically perfect. But for me, I don't want it to be sort of like I want it to be good. I want it to be like really bad, but uh not optically perfect, and then you know it's not weather sealed. So yeah. overall though, I like it a lot. Cool. Would not recommend it. <laughs> buy the new one <laughs> yes well i'm glad you like it and speaking of not optically perfect you want to talk about the other lens you got like so bad maybe i should have talked about that one instead okay somebody in this room bestowed upon me the infamous famous beloved helios 44-2 which you talked about on a recent episode i did i talked to is this was a part of my lucas's legendary lens lineup and this was in the segment entitled Helios Prime and the Swirly Boys. And I've been enjoying shooting with that one as well. Uh, on crop sensor, you don't quite get as much of the swirls because it is a full frame lens. And a lot of that character happens on the outer regions of it. And so ever since uh, you gave that to me, I've been like, 
maybe I should get a speed booster. <laughs> and I'm like this close to buying one just because of how cool that lens is. Yeah, you're going to buy an adapter that costs three times as much as the lens? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yes. <laughs> yeah. It's a screw mount. And like, I didn't realize that M42 mounts were, were like a like a screw. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't know in. what that meant. I, I didn't think it meant a literal screw thread. Yeah, I know. It's just like, <laughs> turn, 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 turn. I'm like, I don't know how much a quarter pass tight you're supposed to turn that thing yeah. for it to be correct. <laughs> uh, but that one's been a lot of fun. Very cool lens. Uh, yeah. Cool. Well, so we just talked about those two lenses. Now, I recently read an interview with some Fuji marketing manager people, and there was an interesting little tidbit in there that I wanted to run by you. Okay. And and I don't know anything about this. You don't know I'm anything excited. about this? Here we okay. go. So they gave a statistic on the average number of X-mount lenses that an X-mount photographer owns. Oh, man. Oh, oh, And oh. I want you to guess what that number is. Oh, oh, okay, okay. Um, um, average X-mount photographer uh, is somebody who loves film simulations and is a street photographer, so probably shoots on primes. And that means they're going to have the 16, the 23, the 35, and the 56, and a zoom. So I'm going to say that the average owns three lenses you're close the answer is 2.5 whoa that's it which for people keeping score at home is only 0.5 more than the number of lenses you've acquired in the last two weeks (laughs) stop it get out of here oh boy i i feel like four or five lenses is about right for for you know a person (laughs) i don't i mean like if we're counting only x mount lenses i only have like four lenses i think the helios counts does it count i mean like if we're counting all the lenses that i have i'm gonna need a minute (laughs) (laughs) the thing did say x mount lenses so i guess i guess the helios itself is not x mount i think i own like 11 lenses Welcome back to the Camera Gear Podcast. I'm Daniel. And I'm Lucas. And we're back today to talk more about the gear we use for photo and video. But like, they're not all, like, I have one, like, Maika lens or two. Because I, like, have some old film cameras. And so I have, like, two-ish, no, three um, FE lenses, EF lenses, FE lenses, which I learned something about those. So back in the day, I'm going to get this wrong. Uh... Canon wanted Canon they wanted to get into the into that cinema lens world, right? And they wanted to come out with some spherical cinema lenses. This is circa 1970, whatever. And the F is it FE? It's FE. It's just F, right? What are you talking about? What's the name of the old FD? FD. That's oh, okay. the word. Okay. They had these old FD mount lenses, and so they're going to come out with new Canon super cool cinema lenses. And so what they decided to take the FD lenses that they had already, you know, designed and engineered, and then repackage them as cinema lenses. And so these pretty famous Canon cinema lenses, um, which I wish I could remember what they're called, uh, they might just be FD cinema lenses. I'm doing a really bad job explaining this. Uh, those are very expensive. They're very very expensive. But the trick is they are almost optically identical to the FD lenses that are their counterparts. And some of those FD lenses, one of which may or may not show up in a future segment, <laughs> is like one of the first sort of, uh, you know, like modern film camera aspherical lenses, hmm. which is kind of cool. And But those are all the FD stuff. And so if you can find like certain pretty good FD lenses, it's they're basically the same as these cinema lenses and they could be fun to adapt and use for uh, a movie or something sounds like something to have on next week's episode of lucas's new lens oh that's true that's true next time yeah but this time daniel we're doing we're doing a new segment of lucas's legendary lens list all right what do you got this one is called king of buka not Boca, but Buka. Well, like a lot of the things that I read, they they like wrote spooky they wrote, wrote Boca wrong with like two O's. Maybe, uh, maybe that's a German pronunciation. Yeah, it could so, be. So we're going with. Or it's like like Boca in a scary movie. Oh, or something. Yeah, you know, you're right. Yeah. It's the king of Buka. There you go. <laughs> this is the Pentacon 135 f 2.8. This lens came out in mm, roughly the 1960s. It wasn't produced for very long. There are two versions of this lens. 
and it's a German lens. I don't know if I said that, but there's two versions. The first one has five aperture blades, which like, okay, whatever. The second version has 16 aperture blades. That's a lot. Because mm-hmm. average now for most modern lenses is what, like nine maybe? Nine is is good. Nine is pushing yeah. it. Like if like you're seven, looking for something. Nine, something like mm-hmm. that. Yeah, seven or nine. Uh, if you're looking for something that has like a really round bokeh and it's like a portrait lens, it's going to be nine. I think the I think the, the knocked, the new one is maybe 11. Okay. Uh, so 16 like, is a lot. Yeah, that's like more round roundness to your bokeh. And so, you know. This one had 16 aperture blades. And it's not just the roundness of the out-of-focus lights. The blades themselves and, like, how that's positioned affects, like, how the light is, how the fall-off happens within the lens. And so this specific lens, when it came out, uh, with its, you know, mini aperture blades, has this very particular, uh, like, fall-off into the out-of-focus. And it's, it's very pleasing as far as like how how it transitions and it's not it's very smooth and very creamy and uh, yeah so this was a this was a pretty sweet lens when it came out sounds like kinda, it kind of kind of one of those ones that you want to look for if you're trying to build out your vintage lens lineup mm-hmm. you can get it in M42 screw oh man yeah so if you're get yourself a Helios maybe you go out there and get yeah. yourself a Pentacon. How much do the, how much do these things run? Usually less than a hundred bucks. Yeah, it's pretty so good. Not not too expensive. They're not like it's not like looking for a knocked or looking for like one of the original aspherical FD fifty five one point four lenses. Boy, those things were like four thousand dollars probably. Maybe not. Maybe they're only five hundred. Anyways, whatever. It's not like that. Less than a hundred bucks. But you know, if you're looking for like the king of bokeh, maybe you're thinking of the Leica Sumix, you know, F two thirty five millimeter, or maybe you're thinking of like. The Nikon Noct or the Nikon 135, but this one, 1960, I have no basis for this, but I'm going to go with probably the first king of Boca. The original king. The original king. Of Boca. Yep. Mm-hmm. If this was uh, music, it would be Elvis. I don't, I don't even know what to say to that, but it seems like if you have one of the, if you're into vintage lenses and are really into the idea of trying stuff like this, it's cool that you can get so many things for so cheap. Yeah, definitely. Like if you don't care about autofocus and you're looking for you know just what's a really cool lens manual focus you can adapt it to basically any mirrorless camera vintage lenses are kind of cool yeah i think that's pretty neat one more thing on uh this pentacon lens f32 as the maximum <laughs> aperture i wonder does that have something to do with that number of blades it has to it has, it has to because most lenses top out at i mean the most you ever really see is f22 yeah. and a lot of them it's less it's like f11 or something yeah usually it's like the wider you go if you have like a 1.4 1.2 lens it's gonna be like f16 and 18 mm. and then once you get in your f4 lenses those will go up a little higher but this one i f32. mean if you're looking for if you're looking for all kinds of of uh diffraction problems mm. and like really tiny aperture do you, think, do you think you get the little starburst effects on distant lights? That I don't know. I don't think this one particularly does that. That's more of it's other kind of vintage lenses. Usually it's less aperture blades. Yeah. This one's more of like very round, round, mm-hmm. uh, round yeah. bokeh. So. Bokeh master. Yeah. Anyways. Pretty cool. Pretty cool. If you go, if you're going to look for one, look for the 15 blade version, mm-hmm. not the lesser blade version. Yes. No, so. never buy the lesser blade version. Yeah. No. Always the more, more or blade. Yes. And this has been another segment of Lucas's legendary lens list. <laughs> I almost feel like you need outro music from that. <laughs> yep. <laughs> it's just like a, like a camera shutter sound. Yeah, yeah, that's that's simple. I think we can make that happen. Okay, there's a few things that I wanted to update on based upon some last episodes. Cool. Can we move into the 21st century of cameras now? Yeah, we can, like, whatever, Daniel, okay. Literally everything we've talked about in this episode so far is old. That's, that is true. The 23 is over 10 years old. <laughs> 44 is like 50 years old. Okay. All right. Moving right, so on. New, newer stuff. All right. So Not the brand newer, but. <laughs> I mean, unless you want to get into it. <laughs> there is maybe a little bit too much behind the curtain. But we record some of these episodes a little ahead of time. You know, maybe a week or two. And in listening back to some of our episodes, there's been a few things that I felt like maybe could use a little more context. Yeah. Some might call this follow-up. Perhaps, perhaps we could, in theory, consider it to be follow up. Not that we're calling it that because we don't want to get sued. Yeah, that's true. But if it was, it, it could be. Yeah. yeah. Something Sim- similar to follow up. Similar to follow up adjacent. 
And the first is on the R5C. I gave that my top video camera for uh, spring 2023 when rated against the R-Tings criteria for top uh, filmmaking cameras. Mm -hmm. And what I didn't know is that uh, until very recently was whenever you shoot in like higher frame rates, like if you're shooting raw or you're shooting 4K60, the LP6 battery in that thing does not put out enough power to support those modes and you can only use it if you're using a dummy battery or have or are charging the camera actively while running in those modes. Interesting. Yeah. Huh. At first glance, I don't I don't think that's that bad. I mean No, I mean like if you're shooting in those modes, you're probably rigging it out, but I thought that, that was kind of a kind of a pretty interesting limitation that that thing just doesn't have the right battery in it. I kind of respect it though because I mean, the what would the alternatives be? Like they could have put a bigger or more expensive or whatever battery in it, yeah, which would mean that you couldn't use the LPE6 batteries you have and and maybe if you don't use those modes that that might just be a negative for you. What are the what are the Canon cinema cameras use? Like what does the C200 use? I think they use special batteries. I I can't remember what they they start with a B. Um, like, but it's some sort of version similar, like an NPF, where it's a it's external like that. battery that clips in. Yeah, something like that. So, I mean, I kind of respect that the R5C is still a normal size camera, and if you're using those regular, if you're if you're not shooting in those high modes, you could use a normal LPE6. I think that's cool, and I also think it's cool that Canon put these features in because they also could have just said like, well, this is going to have to stay on the C70 and up because we can't power it. Right. So it's cool that they give you the option to use those modes if you can externally power it. It looks like they're BP batteries, like a BPA60 or BPA30, uh, and that okay. would be the capacity. So, yeah, it is. It's cool that it can do it. I mean, hopefully you're rigging it out if you're shooting in RAW and like using the R5C for that kind of thing. But man, it almost made me wish that I had uh, gone with what you had said and, and said, you know, C70 yeah. for my for my. But I can't change it. Nope. Nope. Not that until. is in the past. Yeah, we're done there. So I, I still think the R5C is pretty cool camera. Pretty cool. Very, very interesting that that is a limitation. Mm-hmm. Okay, the next thing. So uh, in a recent episode, if not one of the most recent episodes, we discussed rumors for the upcoming A7C Mark II and that it could be coming out. And I pitched to you that if the A7C Mark II is uh, a 74 but cheaper and in a different body with some lower res screens. We're talking about something that's basically an A7 IV for $1,800. Right. And I was like, would you buy that or would you buy a Panasonic S5 II? And we didn't mention the Canon R8 because it hadn't come out yet. Mm-hmm. And so that was like, it was, it felt very missing in the conversation. Yeah. Because that one, if the A7C Mark II comes in at $1,700 or $1,800, the R8 is already cheaper yep. and can do things that the A7 IV cannot. And we were pretty impressed with the R8. We were pretty impressed with the R8. So in those in that context, I mean, if you had, say like the A7C Mark II comes in at the same price. You got the Sony camera at 1500 you got the R8 at 1500 and you're cross-shopping those two. What do you do? I mean, I think it's pretty hard to decide. I think I'd have to give the edge to Sony because of, mostly because of the lenses. Man, that's kind of what we, that's kind of what we said last time yeah. was like, man, E mount lenses, that Tamron thirty five to whatever one twenty, uh, a lot of a lot of cheap Sigma glass. Yeah. Nothing's changed much in that regard, but I mean, it's just like these Canon cameras seem cool. And I mean, even the lower end stuff like the R50 and all that seem cool, but I just can't get over the lens thing. They're they're just so expensive. Yeah. So expensive. And there's no path to there being a cheaper lens option. They they have their mount closed to third parties, so people can't, we we don't think that Sigma and et cetera are making lenses for it. And so what's going to happen? I I don't know. Do you think they're ever going to open it up? I feel like they're going to have to. I think that they're going to get left behind. I mean, we keep seeing people post YouTube videos saying they're switching away from Canon. And I think they're going to have to do that to try and get the lower end of the market back. Mm -hmm. Yep. I mean, everyone's like, you know what? I'm tired of my Canon, whatever. I'm going to switch to Sony. Like Sony is the only other option. Yeah. It's almost like Nikon doesn't even exist. Not that they haven't come out with a camera in like two years. Anyways, uh, I used, I used a Sony like a last week or the week, I think it was last, was last week or the week before I was doing some footage comparison and stuff. Yeah. And I was shooting with an a7 III and like going through a lot of the settings and testing a lot of the codecs. I didn't like it. <laughs> it just wasn't, it wasn't The user experience me. isn't as good, right? It wasn't. And like some of the stuff was confusing. I mean, like, well, we're going to talk about this later and this whole experience and dealing with like all the different co- profiles and stuff on, on the Sony cameras. But, you know, I guess teaser or whatever. I like I almost wish there was another option. It's like if you're quitting Canon, we're like, I don't know if I'd want to go to Sony, but they have such a foothold. Yeah. And it just feels like the default at this point. Mm-hmm. Going to have to go to Fuji. I guess so. 
Funny, yeah. funny how that ended up. Mm, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, anyway, so that was my update there was like, you know, you got to talk about the R8 when you're talking about the A7C Mark II. Yeah. And we'll yeah, that's, see, that's we'll see what point. that looks like. Maybe mm-hmm. they'll figure out a way to give us uncropped 4K60 so that it competes with the uh, R8. Yeah. You know, I, I like to see more competition. I hope that Sony does release that camera at that price point. And I mm-hmm. mean, honestly, I'd like to see something stir a cannon into opening up their mount. I'd, I'd like to see it at $1,200. I would oh, like to man, see them that'd be aggressive. Come, in, come in under the R8, leave all the specs the same, ship it you know, with the APS-C mode for 4K60, but like all the A7 IV features, mm. uh, you know, obviously lower resolution screen, lower resolution EVF, but ship it like that and come in 1200 bucks man that would be aggressive yeah it would that would that would be basically what the rp was whenever it came out but yeah, with more true. video chops true, and plus true. it's 30 it'd be 30 megapixels so yeah. at that point i mean i don't know how you go r8 yeah but, i mean we're, we're just all waiting for it right like canon has been killing it this year with with their lower end lineup and we're just waiting we're just waiting right yep, yep. someone's got to do the a7c mark ii and they got to do the a5 and um, hopefully bring out some aps cameras too yeah well we will see what happens okay not even what we're talking about today, Daniel. We got it. We got to get to it. Yeah, what are we talking about today? Uh, did you watch that Aperture event? I, I did. Did you? No, I didn't. <laughs> you, do you are you are you up to speed enough to talk about? Yeah, it? I think so. All right, hit me. Hit really? me with it. What did what did Aperture release today that I can't live without? So they announced three new things. The first was an update to their Cobb series of lights. So they have the. Cobb 60 that we've talked about on this show. They also have uh, a 100 series and a 200 series. And these are basically affordable lighting options from Apertures. They're under their Amaran branding. Right. Is, is Amar- Amaran is their consumer affordable? Basically, yeah. It's like like they have plastic bodies instead of the metal bodies on the uh, Aperture branded lights. And they're, they're just more consumer grade. Were all of these marked with an S to indicate that they are like the next version? The new they... ones were, yeah. Okay, so, so we have like a COB 60XS mm-hmm. and then a Amaran 100XS. Yeah, that's right. And Are these all X versions or are they released D versions? They did both. So they have a D, the D versions daylight only, X is by color. They released S versions of both. So okay. they basically like six new lights. Yeah. Okay, seems, cool. Yeah. And it seems like the only improvement is that they've improved the color rendering of those lights. So like, there's, the, like the CRI and all those other metrics mm, of how accurate the color is. Yeah, they talked about three different ones. It was CRI, TLCI, and SSI. And I think they spent quite a bit of time on SSI because that's a pretty big improvement in these new S-series uh, lights. And I didn't tot- I, I missed the explanation where they said exactly what SSI was. It has something to do with sunlight and how closely it matches that. And one thing that's weird about SSI is that it seems like there's a different SSI value for tungsten versus daylight. Spectrum similarity index. Interesting. Confidence factor for predictably predictability of accurate color rendering based upon how similar a source spectrum is to, according to Google. Oh, okay. So now, now we know. But these new S-series lights seem like they had higher numbers for all those things, SSI specifically. And that's really the main improvement they showed. So we'll have to wait and see when reviews come out. I don't know if there'll be any other things they didn't talk about. From the specs, it seems like the newer lights are a little bit less in terms of maximum brightness. So maybe you're trading a small bit of brightness for improved color rendering. Okay. But, but basically like similar input power... Yeah. but little less output lux mm-hmm. and then better accuracy in general. Yeah, and no no other major changes, you know, okay. like the design's exactly the same, the power options are the same, like that's all identical. And these still all integrate with the Aperture app and and all that stuff. Yep, they all integrate with the Cytos Link app. They all have mm-hmm. the effects, lightning and fire and all that kind of nice. stuff. Uh I mean, these seem like great lights. When I saw this announcement, Honestly, I was thinking more that I'd rather have one of the older ones at a discount. Sure. Because for me, it's like I want the color rendering to be as good as possible, but I feel like the old ones were pretty high on all that stuff anyway. Yeah. And I also feel like unless every light in your production is at that quality, then it doesn't really make that much of a difference. Right. Like Like if it matters that much, why aren't you buying a better light maybe? Well, or like if you're using two lights, it seems like either they both need to be, you know, at this S level of quality or you're not really going to get the benefit. So maybe like what this means is if you're buying two Amaran lights, you know, of the current versions, there may be some discrepancy in exactly how 
accurate they are. Maybe one's more accurate than another. And so you could have some matching limitations. True. Um, but hopefully yeah. with like the bicolor, you can tweak it a little bit yeah. to get close. But it's probably not a temperature thing. It's probably just an accuracy thing. Mm-hmm. Versus like these new S series, these are probably going to be within a closer margin of error. Yeah. So it like really, really matters, but you're budget constrained. Mm-hmm. Maybe that having two of the S's is going to make more sense. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's probably... That's probably the case. Okay. So. Yeah, that makes sense. I have a I have a daylight only light, mm-hmm. and I really like it a lot. But I feel like having bicolor is so much more flexible that it's worth worth the added cost. Agreed. Definitely. I think in most of the case for these amaranth lights, the difference is maybe what sixty dollars and uh, roughly. Yeah, it's somewhere around there. I think it might vary. I think for the more powerful lights, it might be a bigger difference. Yeah, but it's not like. You're not like doubling the cost no. or anything. It's it's usually yeah. less than hundred dollar difference, and you are it's giving up worth some. It. You are giving up some brightness, right? But some brightness versus flexibility. Yeah. So I don't know. I think it is worth it. I like having the bicolor. Did they release new tube lights as well? They did. There's two different things. So under the Amaran brand for the consumer stuff, they released some tube lights for that. Now Aperture has already had tube lights, but. What's new about these is that they have RGB quote unquote pixels in them. And so that means that the light can have different colors along the bar. Oh, that's neat. Yeah. So if you have like a one foot light bar, you can have like four different colors on that on that one foot okay. section. And they also showed off all this cool stuff where you can define effects. So you could have like a light like running down the bar and, you know, do flashing effects and things like that. You can define all that with the app. Um so just like really, really flexible lights that you could do all kinds of cool special effects type stuff with. You know, you have it, have it as a practical in your scene and make something look really sci-fi or whatever. It seemed really cool. That's neat. How yep. much do those things run? Um, I think the, the cheapest one, the one foot tube was like $130, which I thought was really reasonable actually for an RGB uh, tube. It's like not mm-hmm. that not that much more expensive than an Aperture MC, you know, little tiny light. And they go up from there. You know, the four foot one is going to cost, yeah, I think it's like three, four hundred bucks for the four foot. Mm-hmm. So they, they go up in cost from there. I, I, those are really cool. cool, but I'm having trouble imagining a place where I would use those. Yeah, I think they'd be neat as practicals in a scene. You know, yeah. if you shoot like a music video or something, yeah. it'd be cool to have like you know, a couple of them like vertically in the background or yeah, something. I guess, you know, but. you're always looking for some sort of practical. You got to have you know, more interest in, in your scenes and that sort of thing. Yeah. And boy, is it is it hard to, with especially like with the state of LEDs today, it's like you can't just grab a lamp and throw it in there anymore because yeah. it's, it's probably going to strobe. Yep. Yep. So I guess this, you know, there's more need for these types of lights. Yeah. Well, and there's a big advantage with them all working with the app. You know, if you have an aperture key light and, uh, you know, cob light as your fill light, and then you have a couple of these tubes in your background, you can control all of it from the same app. That's pretty cool. And so that's kind of neat. Like you can stand in one spot, adjust all these intensity levels and colors and all that. So I, I honestly feel kinda... like the the app support for the aperture stuff is really a cool differentiating factor. It, yeah. it kind of makes me want to go with Aperture over something like Godox that might yeah. be a little cheaper, uh, you know, or for an equivalent light. Because, mm-hmm. like, you're not going to get all that, you know, integration support. And so if you have a lot of lights, it's nice you can control them all from your phone. Yeah, I agree. The, uh, the final product they released was under the Aperture brand, and it was a sort of more advanced version of the LED tubes. And they called it Infinibar. I think was the name. And it's a similar kind of concept as those tubes I was just talking about. So it's it's these long LED strips, basically, that can be multiple colors. So you can get, you know, 12 different colors in a in a one foot section, you know, at the same time and do those same running effects and all that. But this system, it's like it's made to you know be able to kind of like build up shapes and stuff. So they have this mm-hmm. whole set of kits where you can get these like metal brackets to mount them together in different ways and stuff. And they were showing triangles and stars and squares and just all kinds of things. And they show all these examples of how you can use it where they've built up like a grid of these things. And then you have people like dancing in front of it or whatever. And it's just this like super flexible colored lighting system thing. Interesting. Yeah. So like build out frames for your set or whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And what's what's cool about these and what sets them apart is that the light goes all the way to the very end of the bar. And so they call it Infinibar because you can put multiple of them together and there's no seam between them. It just looks like one continuous light. That's cool. Yeah. So pretty neat product. Probably has some uses on high budget productions, but man, is it expensive. I mean, it is unbelievably expensive to get that stuff. Like, how, 
What, what, what are we well, talking I mean, here? I mean, for a single light, you can get one for under $1,000. Okay. But if you want like a kit to build, you know, like a, a square or, you know, some some sort of shape or something. I mean, it easily gets up to like five, $6,000. Nice. If you want the metal brackets to shape things together and all that, they sell a kit of those for like $1,400. Jeez. You can get a single metal bracket for like $80. I mean, it's just like, this is not made for people like you and me. You know, this is for right. like high, high budget production stuff some of the things they showed in there you know they have all these like sample videos where they're showing how people are using it i mean it's just like okay cool you know thank you for showing me that forty thousand dollars of aperture lights you know it could be like a studio setup you know you have your light set up for whoever's going to rent your space and then they can just set however they want to so i mean it's cool to see all this stuff and like it all kind of trickles down you know it starts at this level where it costs a lot but i mean this is kind of showing like what is going to be a few hundred bucks in five years so yeah yeah That is pretty cool. Uh, how, how long till we start seeing this? In, I think it's all available in YouTube videos. Yeah, probably not. Probably not long. I don't know if the the Infinibar stuff is available yet. It might be. I know the S versions of those other lights, or you can already buy it. Uh, nice now but yeah i was thinking the same thing when i was watching it. it's like this this is going to be in every YouTuber's background. Yep. Jeez. Okay, there's one more announcement I wanted to hit before we actually get into this main topic. All right, sounds good. Okay. Uh, there has been a rumor and I guess it's an announcement from Tamron. Um, I think this is up for pre-order, but finally, you know, Tamron said, Hey, we're going to come out with lenses for the XF mount. We're going to come out with three zooms. We've been waiting on the third shoe to drop. And here it is. It's the XF Tamron 11 to 20 F 2.8. Nice. They finally released the wide angle zoom I've been waiting for. I had considered, uh, investing in this over the 16 mil 1.4. Oh, wow. That's they, hard to imagine. I know. If if it had been out when I was looking to buy the 16, I was like, should I wait for this to come out? Or like, do I replace mm. my 16 now? Now, was that the first time or the second time you bought the Just, 16? It was the second time, okay. Daniel. Jeez. Just, Any- just trying to clarify timeline here. Anyway. So, you know, there isn't, there isn't a good, that's not true. There is a good wide angle zoom for Fuji. And it is the 8 to 16 f2.8. But that lens costs one bajillion dollars. And that is like the most expensive lens they make, isn't it? Yeah, it's like $2,500 or something. Yeah, it's not the ridiculous. most expensive. Like they have a 200 millimeter f2 that is pretty expensive. But the, the, as far as like, you know, standard zooms, this is not a standard zoom. The 8 to 16 is expensive. You can't put a filter on it. It's, it's like, you know, bulbous and everything. Mm-hmm. But that lens is incredibly sharp. And super fantastic. The 10 to 24, which is optically stabilized and is f4, is not great. You had that lens, and not not only was the f4 a little limiting, but it was also just not super sharp, right? Right, exactly. The f4 was it was limiting. I mean, shooting indoors with it, I mean, I used it for like a weekend, and then I returned it. Mm-hmm. And it was cool to be able to like shoot video with it. I liked shooting at 10 and 12 millimeter. That was very fun. Uh, but man, was that it was so distorted. And like I was inside, I was shooting at 3200 ISO minimum, even yeah. in even the daylight, just because of how how slow it is at a four. Mm-hmm. And so I returned that lens and I bought the 16. And I didn't even think about the lens afterwards. Yeah. Because the 16 is so good. Mm-hmm. Love that. That was the first time I bought the 16 millimeter. So this one's going to be f2.8. So, so it may we, solve that problem a yeah, little so bit. So this is f2.8. The minimal focus distance on this lens. So Tamron's released the this lens for Sony before. So it's a Sony APS-C lens. And they're basically just remounting it. So it's not going to have an aperture ring. It's not going to have any like switches or anything on same it. Same as the 17 to 70. Yeah, very, it's, it's basically exactly the same as the 17 to 70 as far as like build quality, the polycarbonate mm-hmm. outside, all the, all that stuff. Uh, but I mean, at the at the wide end, the minimal focus distance. So if you're shooting at 10 millimeter, minimal focus is uh 5.9 inches. That's really close. That's really close. The 16 millimeter is pretty much the same. It's like four or five and a half inches or something. And you're always talking about how you like the close focus. Yeah, on that's one of the exciting things to do that you can do with a 16. In my opinion, is like you can get very close to the subject and so you get this really interesting like out of focus behind them but because it's such a wide view you see a lot of background in behind your subject and you just get it's a really interesting effect Mm -hmm. that you can't get if you don't have a very close focusing wide angle lens i wish the 16 is and this is so it meets that requirement it's f 2.8 so it's nice and fast 
and it's a great range, 11 to 20 on APS-C. I mean, that's yeah. based, it's basically your, your 16 to 30 or whatever. Good point. Yeah, especially like for vlogging or something, it'd probably be an ideal lens. Yeah, so like I always felt like this this lens is just straight up missing from Fuji's lineup and they haven't really released anything. I know that like they made it so that you can buy like the 8 to 16, the 16 to 55, and the 55 to 140, and then like there's your trinity. But for me, this is a better lens than the 8 to 16 for most people. Yeah. 10 millimeters is pretty wide. It's not like full frame 16 millimeter wide, but that's like 20 millimeters, which is wider than standard 24. Mm-hmm. And yeah, yeah, uh, not uh, not optically stabilized, but that wide, I would argue that you probably don't need it. It's got uh, one of those fast focusing motors in it and I'm, I'm pretty excited for this to come out. I don't think I will buy it because I did buy the 16 and I don't need a wide angle lens and a wide angle zoom and I prefer primes anyway, but I think this is your lens, Daniel. How I much think. does the Sony one cost, you know? Uh, I mean, they're not that expensive. Uh, Tamron, Because I'm assuming the, uh, I'm assuming it'd be about the same. Uh, looks like the Sony one's about 700 bucks new used you can find them for closer to five okay not bad it's so funny like i mean the 17 to 70 i think we've talked about like it's such a useful lens and i like the shots i get with it because it's often in the range that i need it to be but i just don't the lens does not bring me joy it feels it feels cheap and it's stupidly long and i don't know it's fine but it's not my favorite yeah i i have a similar apathy towards that lens it's not like the 16 mil and the 23 millimeter that I use that where I just, I'm like, I love these lenses. Mm-hmm. I really like taking pictures with them. I love the way that they look and just, it has something about it. Yeah. The 17 to 70 just doesn't have that. Yeah. I don't know if this lens would feel the same as that, but the range definitely sounds useful. The price sounds about right. I like that it's fast. So I think it's going to be a good addition to the lineup. Yep. Definitely feel like it was missing and it's uh, really cool to see it come out. Yeah. So, There we go. You know, sure would be nice if somebody with an APS-C Canon RF camera could get this lens. Oh, Uh, yeah. Sure would be nice. But they can't. You know, it. I feel like like every other week I read a story about how Sony just released this trinity of prime lenses for this other mount. And it's that same like 1635-56-1.4 trilogy of lenses, lenses. And they're just releasing them for everything. They released them for Z mount like three weeks ago. Yep. You can buy them from like XF, Z, E... I guess you can't EF, but anyways, whatever. There's probably more than that. I think it's L mount. Yeah, L mount. Anyway, they make them for like everything. And I mm-hmm. bet if Canon was like, hey, RF is open now, Sigma would slap some RF on the back of them and be like, here you go, done. Yeah. yeah. Then, the, the week after they announced that they're ready to go. Mm-hmm. So it's all just there waiting. Be perfect for a, for a EOS R7. Yeah. Well, good thing for us. We shoot uh, a system that has an open lens. Uh, yeah lens mount true i mean that, and that was that was recent but i feel like that was a really good choice by fuji yeah yeah but, i think so man and, like and a, this lens is a good example an r50 with like this lens oh it'd be perfect any of those sigma primes be great yeah be so that good. would be perfect anyway never gonna happen i guess yeah i guess not okay what are we what are we actually talking about so, today daniel so now that we're 40 minutes into this episode perfect. talk about the real topic which is something that we both did recently we shot a youth event at our church so a lot of kids running around, a lot of action, you know, big, pretty big action. crowd. <laughs> pretty big crowds, you know, some some fast-paced stuff, some not, but you know, kind of a different shooting situation than what we typically do. It's not like doing an interview or whatever. And so I thought it'd be interesting to kind of go through that and talk about some of the gear we used and uh what our experience was actually shooting that event. Yeah, cool. Event shooting, man. I mean, that's where uh, that's where a lot of uh, photographers and videographers make their money right now. Corporate yeah. event shooting, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Not everyone's a big filmmaker, Daniel. Yeah. I guess let's start with the gear side of things. Do you want to go through your What is cam- this, the camera gear podcast? Uh, yeah, it's not something like that. So you want to go through what you shot, like what your camera setup was? All right. So I shot with... Shot with Fuji cameras, obviously. Oh, shocker. <laughs> Fuji bro over here. No, I shot with, uh, I shot with the X-T3. And that was primarily used for gimbal work. And so we put that on a Ronin SC. RSC2. RSC2. Yep. And then I shot with my X-H2S and I with a number of different lenses. For the X-T3, I shot with the 23 1.4, which you may have heard me talk about recently. It's a pretty cool lens. Yeah. Uh, I feel like for gimbal work, that focal length is pretty great. It's 35 millimeter equivalent full frame and... Yeah, I, the field of view was nice. It wasn't 
overly wide shooting with the 16 on the gimbal also looks pretty good. I was about to ask if you, you know which you would have preferred. I don't think I have a preference, but okay. the 23 was a pretty cool option. So I really enjoyed that. I, I tried to use it with a monitor and like have the monitor over here and then like use manual focus. And that was a nightmare. Mm. I was like, screw it. I took the monitor off and I set it to autofocus and I just went for it. <laughs> and like we used a lot of shots for the video that was made. A lot of the shots that we used were these gimbal shots. And it looked good, but I man, it was like every shot, there was some sort of focus hunting happening. Yeah. And I was like, boy, the X-T3 just isn't the best autofocuser. Yeah. Now, uh, do you think that was the lens or was that the camera? I think it's a mixture of both. Okay. The, the X-H2S autofocus system is substantially better than the X-T3. And that was noticeable. But then also the 23 millimeter doesn't have the linear motor. It is a step mm-hmm. motor. And so I think that, you know, we're still kind of fighting some of that older, 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 older motor technology. I still don't know how much of the, so, so we've had trouble with doing manual focus on the gimbal with basically every Fuji camera and every lens we've tried. Yes. And we haven't tested an extensive amount. So I don't know if this is the case for every lens. Maybe it's not. XT3 16 mil, XT3 23 mil, XH2S 17 to 70, yeah. XT3 17 to 70, mm-hmm. and uh, I think that's that's, a, that's, a, that's at least what we've tested. Mm-hmm. And and what I'm talking about is the gimbal has a USB-C cable that you can plug into the camera, right? And then the gimbal has a little finger wheel that you can turn, and it will focus the lens. And so you can put your camera in manual focus, and then you can use that little wheel to change the focus of the lens. And I used to love doing this on the GH5 because I could keep it in manual focus so it wouldn't focus hunt, but I could still adjust the focus without having to touch the camera or anything like that, and it was great. But the problem is that for some reason on all these setups we just talked about, it's like there's a lag or something. Like you'll you'll go to move the, the finger wheel, and it will eventually move the lens, but it'll usually overshoot where you want it to land on. And so it... it it's like this trial and error, trying to bump it back and forth until it lands where you want. It's I've never, very frustrating. I've never felt like there was a lag, but more of just like always an overshoot. There is never a small enough amount that you can move the focus wheel mm-hmm. that doesn't overshoot on the lens. And it makes it basically unusable. Yeah. So I don't know what the deal is with that. I don't know if it's a firmware issue or it, it seems like a software thing somehow, but I, I don't know what the problem is, but that's really frustrating. I wish, I wish it worked better because using... Uh, a Fuji dial-based camera on a gimbal was pretty cool yeah. because your ISO is like right there and, you know, I can, and the app, you know, the aperture is right on the lens. And so I can be shooting and then just reach my left hand up and go mm-hmm. boop, 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 and then change, change those two settings. Yeah, and you're not and like, running, running through menus. Yeah. And, all that. and like, if I'm holding it with my right hand, I have to like switch hands and like go find the, you know, the button mm-hmm. or like grab the grip and then turn the wheel. Cause yep. that, that can kind of be, like it's, it's not it's easy if it's your hand holding yeah but it can be kind of, kind of hard to change yeah. those yeah. you know on the fly so being able to just quickly turn those dials really yeah. made it super easy to adjust exposure mm-hmm. on the fly yeah it's just the focus problem and i mean i think the answer is to use the focus motor that comes with the ronin and right and just man you know basically like put a follow focus on the lens this is a pain to no, I mean, you slap up. a laser on there and use the lighter there you focusing. go yeah yeah was it the Ronin 40S where like it shows you a like a forward backward depth map? Yeah, that's so cool. cool. <laughs> but we didn't have that. No, we didn't. I I want that. Yes, that'd be so neat. Yes. Uh, let's talk about the XH2S rig. So we both were shooting on an XH2S. Yep. We each had our own. We weren't sharing the same camera, and we both had various sorts of rig setups. And I think this is kind of interesting to talk about because I really like using a rigged out camera. You've always kind of had one, but it seems like you've always struggled to really come up with something that you like. Yeah, and, I and always I, end up like taking it apart or using it differently than I imagined mm-hmm. that I was going to use it, and I just don't like it. And I also have a little bit of that problem, too, where I, I imagine something in my head, and then I build it, and then I try it, and sometimes it works, and sometimes it doesn't. And so I was interested going into this event to see how things were going to go, and I think both of us had maybe a slightly different setup than we normally do. So do you do you want to talk about kind of how you set yours up and then how it went for you? Yeah, so like right before we launched this podcast, I bought a new handle for my for my cage and it was a small rig handle with the start stop button. And I this was, you know, 
one of the events where I've got to heavily use XH2S within a rigged setting. Mm -hmm. Most of the other stuff that we've shot in the last year, which is quite a few things, it didn't really make sense to like rig up into a cage yep. and like go that, that whole route versus this where it's like get the battery on there, get the monitor. You're going to be on the floor for a couple hours, like rig the cage out. Yeah. And so I did and like, you know, use that handle heavily and boy is having that mm. button on there godsend because <laughs> you can just hit a button and start recording you don't gotta like go over here and find the stupid you know shutter button yep. you don't have to, like readjust your grip it's right there so that was great so what do you have besides the top handle yeah so i got the top handle and then i finally um just you know, gave in and bought a second monitor mount i originally when i bought that handle i wanted to get the monitor to be mounted to the front not to the top of the handle, but to the front of the handle uh, to get that monitor into a lower profile situation because I just I hate it whenever the rig is like super super tall. Yeah, and I want that I want the monitor to be like as low as possible, close to the lens as possible. And the previous mount that I had, like I thought that I could adapt to an airy mount with the what it just didn't work. And so I bought the airy small rig monitor mount, and that thing's really cool. It's like $20 more than like the newer version. There's the newer, newer plug. Yep, You're yep. looking for that earlier. Or you know, some of the other like similar cheaper brands, but it has like a lever on it or a pin where you can just manually twist it and then it loosens up so you can change the tension without yeah. having an Allen wrench. That is nice because mine requires an Allen wrench. And it has a pin on it on the bottom. So where it screws into the bottom of the monitor, the pin will sit in to, you know, the well, either the, like the set hole or your cage, if you have a cage on your ninja or whatever, so that it doesn't twist mm, on the screw. That's really nice. And those two things, man, they're difference makers, I tell yeah. you. Because sometimes you want to like turn your monitor left or right and then like all you're doing is loosening the screw that it's tied into. Mm-hmm. Not anymore. Nice. So nice. That monitor mount, absolutely worth the 40 bucks I paid for it. And it turns out, the, the one inch difference of like getting it lower on the handle made it for me. Okay. I mean, for when it usually, whenever I have a monitor on there and then I have the screen, I'm like always trying to get to where, man, I got to pull it up. I want to put it up to my eye. I want to like look through the, look through the viewfinder or I want to like look at the back screen because I'm not happy with like the monitor or whatever. This time I closed the back screen. I didn't use it a single time. Wow. I just used the monitor the whole time and that's a big change for me. Yeah. I know that it, you know, maybe I'm gushing a little too much, but I was really happy with that setup. That's good. Then, I, I feel like the monitor has a lot of advantages and so it's good that you found a way to make that work with your setup. Yeah. So I was really happy with that. And then you, the other problem that I have with setting up a a rig is like you have to like not being able to set the camera down without it falling over (laughs) especially because it's so tall yeah oh geez it's such a nightmare it's like just starts tipping and so i finally was like you know what that's it i'm gonna buy i'm gonna buy a base and rails so the rails can be long enough to keep everything mounted and fine and so i did and that was it was exactly what i needed i used the rails to hold my power junkie with an npf plate and i had so i had my my external battery for more you know longer duration i had my monitor and i was on the rails and yeah i was really happy with it nice didn't you buy those rails uh, oh, under duress i like emergency bought them because i set everything up and i was like that's it i just can't deal with this this isn't working and so like i went one day shipped rails to my house uh, <laughs> and i like, picked them up from the house and then went to the event <laughs> yeah you were like pulling things out of boxes while we're setting up for the event <laughs> yep <laughs> i bought some like cable adapters that were like this barrel jacks are basically impossible to figure out mm. so i bought like the wrong barrel jacks and geez yeah Classic. Yeah, that was classic. Good, good times. I had a little bit of a simpler setup than you, and, and it's something that I've used for a lot of events, which is just the camera in the cage with a top handle on top of it and a small HD monitor on top of the handle. So mine still has the problem of being a little bit too tall, but that was the extent of my setup. No external battery. I just had a, a battery in the monitor and all that. But honestly, it worked pretty well for me. I had the same experience as you where I didn't have to use the screen on the camera at all. I had it closed the whole time, which is really nice. It makes it feel a little bit more durable. And I felt like that gives me more rigging options for the future, not not needing to have access to that camera touchscreen. And I didn't have any problems using the camera. It did everything I needed it to, had easy access to the monitor. I mean... Yeah, some, some well. camera brands may have like limitations as far as what passes through to the monitor versus what shows up on yeah. the screen. And in general, the Fuji, if you let it, you know, pass info over the HDMI, then it's all just, it's all there. Yeah. And you don't yeah. have to worry about that. Yeah. Cause you need all those things, right? Like you need to be able to see what your settings are and you need to see when you're recording right. and all that. And so it does let you see all that stuff. So 
worked out pretty well. One of my takeaways from shooting this one was, and it, this is just consistent with everything that we've done so far with the X-H2S, battery life on that camera is pretty decent. It really is. You can legit shoot like continuously in you know 4K 60 or whatever for almost an hour. Mm-hmm. And for something like this where you're like taking clips in and out and that sort of thing, you can probably push a couple hours on a single battery. Yeah. And it's it's really nice. Yeah. I mean, that's great battery life. Not something we've seen on every previous camera. I don't think your X-T3 battery was that good. No, those and 126 W126Ss are just, they're not great. Yeah. There's aren't. Yep. Yep. I agree. One frustration that we saw was the small HD monitor and the stupid HDMI cables it uses. I hate the fact that you can't plug whatever you want into it. It's got that stupid tunnel. And then like the HDMI cable that I use with it, I had to take to a grinder and like grind all the plastic off of it so I could fit into the stupid thing. Yeah. Because the cable that it comes with are garbage and they like start fraying and breaking apart right at the connection point. And so like both of the cables that I came with my small HD have essentially fallen apart. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, what if I could just buy like a Condor Blue cable that would totally work with this? And you can't do that either because the Condor Blue cables don't fit into the stupid monitor. Yep. Yep. Sorry, yeah. I'm not mad about this at all. It's pretty frustrating. It's a small HD focus. They, this model's actually discontinued now, maybe for a good reason. But yeah, it has this weird little... I mean, it's a it's a normal micro HDMI, which is a normal connector. But it goes into this weird little tunnel thing, which I don't know why it had to be that way. Why couldn't they just put it in a more accessible place? Maybe it's to make it more stable because they didn't use a real HDMI yeah. port. Yeah, that's true. I guess it would hold in better. But man, that's frustrating. Uh, mine hasn't broken yet, but it feels like it's a matter of time. I mean, maybe maybe I'm just going to take some pliers to that, that tunnel and snap it off. <laughs> I'm really tempted to get a different monitor because you can, you can get monitors now pretty cheap and they have full-size HDMI ports. You can get ones that have an HDMI out. So if you want to send it to a wireless transmitter or something, you can do that. And I don't know. I'm, I'm tempted. Well, if you're tempted by monitors, may I interest this, you in this Viltrox five and a half inch monitor that was just recently announced. It costs one hundred and sixty nine dollars. I mean, that's a pretty good price. Daniel has not seen this before. I, I haven't. I'm, I'm looking at this live on air. In, interesting. <laughs> where did you hear about it? Uh, uh, Cine D. I'll have to check that out later. It's got a wheel on it that does Ooh. something. We all love a good good yeah. knob. We may have some follow up on on this in a few weeks because I'm I'm kind of tempted. I don't know if I will or not. But the the biggest problem I have with the small HD is that it's only 720p, mm-hmm. and I feel like having higher resolution would be good to be able to really see focus. You can tell. So, you can like really mm-hmm. tell that it's 720p. Yeah. Yeah. With like the advantage of it is that it goes to a thousand nits. Yeah. Yeah. It does and get it has a matte it, screen. It might be might be 800. I don't know if it's a thousand, but. It does get bright, but I want something that has a full-size HDMI port. I want HDMI out. I want power input because the only thing you get on the small HD is an NPF plate. So you have to use a dummy battery to, to power it, which is kind of goofy. And then, yeah, I mean, it's just it's just old. You know, we got we both got it like three years ago, and there's better things now for lower prices. I mean, it sounds like you want like a like a Shinobi or something. Yeah, that that's an option. I've actually been looking at some stuff that PortKeys makes. Okay, yeah. So, isn't Porky's owned by somebody? I don't know. Yeah, I think they're. I mean, I think they're a Chinese brand, but I don't. Okay. I don't know who owns them. But I mean, they had some stuff for like one twenty five or one sixty that looked pretty good. And one thing I liked about it is that they're a lot smaller, so it's like the size of a cell phone rather than. Oh uh, really? I mean, it's still a five inch screen, but it, the bezels are really small. And I thought that could be really nice to just have a more compact setup, and so. I'm kind of interested in well, that. that. sounds... Oh, my gosh, Daniel. I'm looking at their website, and they have one that is an all-white. They took an all-white uh, Komodo 6K, and they put an all-white uh, oh, Viltrox yeah. CineLens on it, and then matched it with an all-white Porky monitor. I like to and I am, that. And I am dying over here. <laughs> this is too cool. Lucas's new camera setup. Oh, boy. I only buy cameras in white. <laughs> now it's my new, it's my uh-huh. new thing. Right. I'm going right. to get all my cameras powder-coated. <laughs> nice. All right, let's move on. I want to cover a few more things. Right, so, um, but Daniel, why not just use your Ninja? Great question. The Ninja weighs a lot. Mm -hmm. That's the biggest problem I have with it. But I also don't feel like the Ninja is as good of a monitor. So when when I've used some of these other, like like if I compare my small HD focus versus the Ninja, the small HD is literally half the weight, which definitely adds up if you're carrying it around for a whole event. But the Ninja to me, for one thing, the colors on the screen don't feel like they are representative of what I see in the camera. I feel like I do a lot of tweaking to get that right, which is really annoying. 
And just the assist features aren't as good. There aren't as many assist features as you get with the monitor. If I just need a monitor, I prefer using a dedicated monitor. I feel like we've had some reliability issues with the Ninja in, yeah. in past as well. That was mostly related to recording, but mm-hmm. movie interessante. Yeah, but one thing that is interesting is that the Ninja actually saved us a little bit during this event, too. Oh, yeah. yeah. So when we were doing this, we were filming for a video that was going to be released after the event. But we also you know, had a lot of people in this room, and there are some big screens in the room. And so we wanted to be able to show things live on the screen as they were happening. You know, right. It was like a live event, trying to make it exciting. And so we have a couple of broadcast cameras that we use, uh, you know, to stream events. And we decided we would use one of those kind of for both purposes. So we were going to stream it in the room, but then also record to it so that we could use that footage when we made a video later. And what camera is this, Daniel? And this is a Blackmagic Pocket 6K camera. So, you know, pretty popular. A lot of Mm -hmm. people use those for for filming. It's a really good camera. And we have it all rigged up on a shoulder rig. We have a Teradek wireless transmitter and and all that. So that's how we're handling the live side of it. But we discovered very quickly when we tried to set it up for recording that the Blackmagic Pocket 6K cannot record in H.264 or H.265 or anything like that. I don't know how we didn't know this up to this point. It's, Same here. It's like, oh, cool, you can record SSD and all that stuff. Apparently, you have to record SSD because yeah. the lowest codec is ProRes LT. Yeah. And it's going to be like a gig a second. Yeah. Yeah. Like, literally, the, the lowest codec you can get is ProRes LT. You, you have various ProRes options as well as Blackmagic RAW. Mm-hmm. And the files are huge. I mean, I shot a file that was under a minute long, and it was like three gigs. It's crazy. Yeah, I mean, like, great if you're filmmaking and you need those codecs, mm-hmm. but I mean... Most people out there are used to uh, Sony cameras that shoot in only like 15 yeah. megabits per second. Yeah. It's just kind of a, just kind of annoying because, I mean, no matter what you're doing, you know, even if you are making a film or something, you might want to take a quick test clip with your camera just sure. to kind of understand what the scene's going to look like or framing or something like that. And I would love to see an H.265 option in that camera. Yeah, no kidding. Nope. Wow. So yeah. we use the Ninja to record H.265, which is an added cost for the Ninja because you have to pay to license that codec. Yeah, which for, fortunately, we, were, we already had that. And right. We had one there, so it was fine. But it sure did feel goofy to have this $2,000 camera and have to add, you know, probably, I guess, about six or $700 worth of extra gear to record a lower codec. We've, kind of <laughs> yeah, that's, that's kind of funny. Yeah. We've, we've never used that camera to record internal ever. It's yeah. only ever been used to either broadcast that signal over HDMI or to record to an external <laughs> monitor. <laughs> that is pretty, pretty ridiculous. Yep. All right. Uh, talk, talk to me about what lenses you used. I mean, you know how it is, man. I mean, it's just Tamron 1770. It's all you need. M- oh, MVP. I didn't use that lens one time. <laughs> I actually used it almost exclusively. So I used my 50 Again? to 140. Yeah. I used my 50 to 140 a little bit, but a lot of what I used was that 17 to 70. And it's just, you know, you're in a, at an event with a lot of people and you can get tight shots at 70 or you can zoom out and get wide stuff. I mean, it's just, it's a great range. Well, I got some delicious footage with your 50 to 140. Well, I'm glad one and, of us used it. And then I was, I said to myself, what if I went even more telephoto and I adapted the Canon 70 to 200 to my camera? <laughs> Which on APS-C gets you to 300? Yep. And that lens, for one, is enormous. Yeah. The 2.8 stabilized version is mm. so freaking huge. Yep. And so I'm like, May, like, I, I'm like, this is going to snap the lens mount off my camera. <laughs> so I'm like, making sure I hold the lens precariously. Like holding so, the camera by the lens. Mm-hmm, yeah, exactly. Jeez, because the lens is more precious than the camera. <laughs> anyway, and so that, man, I don't know what it is about that lens, but it doesn't matter what lens, what camera you put, the 70 to 200 EF, you know, like the, the, the good one, the 2.8 image stabilized. Yeah. That lens looks incredible. It really does. Like, we because we use it on Blackmagic Ursas too, mm-hmm. and it looks really good on those. It's just like the way it, it's so it's so perfectly sharp, and the way the contrast looks as far as like the, the light roll off and like just the way that it renders images on the sensor. Oh man, yeah, I cannot get over how good the seventy to two hundred. I'm gonna put that on. I'm gonna put that on my list. I mean, it probably should be on your yeah, list, honestly. I'm just going to go ahead and add that up here um, right under uh, this. Um, oh, I don't, I don't, oh, this this one right here, the next one. They don't make them like they used to. There we go. And then, uh, there we go. Teaser That's for, good. and so I'll have to come up with a really good title. Canon EF 70 to 200. All right. You just wait. Everyone's going to forget about this. They're going to be like, 
what do you have lens on the Lucas's legendary lens lineup? I'm like, yeah, well, you betcha. Anyway, what are we talking about? <laughs> what other lenses did you use besides that legendary I lens? I mean, <laughs> it, you know, uh, I, well, I don't think I used a 70 to 70. I used a 24 to 105 on, cause I ran the mobile rig mm-hmm. and then I used the 23 1.4. Yeah. I didn't, I didn't use the Helios, unfortunately should have. And I didn't use the 16. I brought my 80 macro cause I thought it'd be cool. Cause like that one is also one of those, uh, it's built for macro. And so like the bokeh is not perfect and you get this really weird mm-hmm. looking bokeh mm-hmm. and I've been wanting to shoot stuff where I had a lot of moving lights yeah. and a lot of really interesting, like out of focus areas. And so I brought that lens with the intent of like, I'm going to get some really weird footage with this thing. Didn't use it at Just all. Didn't happen, yeah, it was huh? unfortunate because that yeah. lens is probably the sharpest lens ever made ever. Yeah. I'm, ever. I'm sure that's not an exaggeration at all. It's so sharp. I mean, something like this, I, I basically brought, I brought most of my lenses, which is not saying much. I don't have that many Fuji lenses, but it. Would you say you have 2.5 Fuji lenses? I, I think I do. I have about 2.5 <laughs> Fuji lenses. But I mean, it, it's, it's, it's cheap to bring lenses, right? Like it's just putting them in the bag and you never really know what you're going to need. But for me, it was like, I could have gotten away with two. 17 to 70 and the 50 to 140, it's a pretty wide range. Welcome welcome to event shooting, Daniel, yeah. where you need a 24 to 70 and a 70 to 200. Yeah, literally, literally where I've ended up. Every every wedding photographer and videographer will be like, we were telling you the whole yeah. time. Yep, you're right. Anything else on gear? Man, uh, whenever we let's see, whenever we were shooting this thing, we normally I would shoot in like F-Log 2 because I can't help myself. And I feel like I'm doing myself a disservice in not using Eterna and not using F-Log 1. So why do you feel that way? A lot of people with with the Fuji cameras will shoot their videos in classic Chrome, (laughs) which I I feel like I don't do it. I feel like I should, but I'm like, Eterna's right there. I mean, I could just use Eterna. And so I feel feel like I have to shoot in Eterna. It is a little flatter, a little more flexible, but I feel like I'm missing out not shooting in classic Chrome. Anyway, it's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is F-Log 2, while you get an insane amount of dynamic range and its footage is really flexible and just, it's just it's such such a good codec. I really like F-Log 2. Uh, and it's 14-bit readout and all that stuff. F-Log 1, less noise. I was doing a lot of A-B testing, which we'll talk about later with a, with a Sony camera and trying like color match footage. Mm-hmm. F-Log 1 is a lot cleaner. You lose a stop and a half of dynamic range, but if you don't need it, yeah. if you only need the standard 12 stops, Shooting F-Log 1. Yeah, and for that's this, good to know. For this, it was quick. We couldn't shoot in log. We needed a Rec. 709 profile. And so we shot in a Turna mm-hmm. and 420. Ugh. 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 Anyway, so 420 Turna. And my takeaway on that was the shadows in a Turna are really clean. And I guess you don't have to shoot in log all the time. <sighs> it's hard for you to admit that, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it is. I mean, I, I didn't really shoot in log that much on the X-T3. But with all like the color grading stuff that we've been doing and, you know, knowing about like learning more about like rec 20 and different color spaces and all this stuff. I'm like, why would I not shoot in log? I get all this extra color information. Maybe shooting this whole huge gamut, uh, you know, and then I'll, I'll conform it down. But for something like this, where we just needed the footage right away, Eterna looks really good. Yeah. It's very, it's very flexible. It's, it's a flatter profile, but until like you have some, you're saving your shadows, but also the shadows look pretty clean even up to like iso 6400 on the xh2s that's it's relatively clean as far as as far as the shadows go i mean it's not great but i would it's decent enough that you know mm-hmm. you couldn't even tell i had some clips that i shot at like 12,800. yeah and you couldn't really tell i was impressed with the noise performance because i shot some stuff pretty high not not quite that high but you know 8,000, 10,000, and i mean it still was usable yeah. So I don't know. That's kind of what I wanted to get to was like, yeah. we didn't shoot. I didn't, we use the cameras in a way that I normally don't. And I was pleasantly surprised with the output. Yeah. So don't, don't discount that. your uh, film simulations guys. Mm-hmm. You know, use your classic Chrome, use your Eterna. Don't, don't shoot in Velvia. Oh boy. Maybe for landscapes, but like video in Velvia. Don't do it. <laughs> this segment brought to you by resident Fuji bro. <laughs> I mean, I could talk about I could talk about more film simulations. No, 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 let's not. Last thing I wanted to cover was just a brief bit on our shooting strategy for this because I I think we learned some things from some of the past events we've done. And if there's anybody out there that's going to be shooting video for events, maybe we can share a little bit about what we did and what we thought worked well. Sure. Yeah, that sounds good. Yeah. One of the things that I really picked up on that was big learning for me over time is that if I am at an event and I have a camera 
I'm going to shoot footage. Yeah. And I can't stop myself. If I'm there, if I'm in the room with my camera and I see something happen, I'm like, I gotta film it. And I don't seem to be able to tell myself, I already have enough clips of that. Mm-hmm. I, I need to not film that. I, I just want to film it because I think maybe this one's better than the last one I got, you know, or whatever. Yeah. And so what I've learned is that, you know, it, you can be strategic about it. And it's like, we look at the schedule for these events and kind of figure out when are things happening? Like, what are the key moments I need to be there for? Make sure you're there for those. Get in there, get a couple of shots. And then what I found is that I just need to leave the room and just yep. remove myself from the situation. And so I would leave and I would go back to the office where we were offloading footage and I would just hang out back there and talk to the guy who was editing the video. Yeah. I think that worked a lot better because I wasn't just running around the whole time filming. I think he was happier because we didn't have, you know, dozens of gigs of video and we still ended up with a really nice result. It was it was funny that like that's that's always the thing that like both of us have learned. Like it's easy to overshoot. Don't overshoot. And so one of the other people that we were shooting with had showed up in the office and was like guys, I got to get out of there. I'm just going to keep taking pictures. <laughs> and it's like the same thing. We yeah. weren't even talking about it. And it's like, oh yeah, well this person, uh, like this person does a lot of like freelance work and it's like, they figured it out. Right. And it's yep. like, you've got what you need. Don't keep going. Yep. Yep. <laughs> and especially, especially if like, you're not the one who's reviewing or editing the footage. It can feel like you're doing a favor for somebody to be like, well, look at all this great footage that I got. But at the end of the day, it's it's almost a disservice because now yeah. they have to go through that much more footage. Mm-hmm. And so it's like learning how to you know, see the shot and then get the shot rather than just being like filming all the time. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, well, the other part of it was like you mentioned, we were working with we were working with other people. It wasn't just you and me. And so we had a pretty strategic plan as far as like, OK, who's going to be getting what? And but then also. You know, if I saw you shooting something on stage or whatever, I was like, okay, they're covering that. Let me go work the crowd or let me go get this other stuff. And so knowing like watching where are the other people that I'm working with and like, let's not be capturing the same thing. Let's make sure we have spread coverage and yet like work with the people that you're, that you work with. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, kind of like along with both of those things, you know, knowing what your event is and what you have to have. So talking to whoever whoever is going to be putting mm-hmm. that video together and understanding what key things do you need. If it's a multi-day or, you know, multi-activity event, can you have them look at some of the clips that you shot and kind of give you feedback on what they need more of and just like really being aware of what you need more of, I think is useful. Yeah, and we were in the fortunate situation where the person editing this had a really good idea of like what they were going to put together like okay this is going to go in this segment this is going to go in this segment and so we're shooting and at one point they're like oh well i have everything i need to edit this portion of the video don't get any more of this it's like great we're done perfect check that part's done and then this is something that's coming up with another shoot the shoot next shoot that we're planning which is kind of set roles for people like if i'm out there shooting on a 70 to 200 you're not out there also shooting on a 70 to 200 it's like if i'm doing focusing on detail shots then someone else needs to focus on wide shots yeah so you can make sure to get the coverage that you need for Mm -hmm. what you're trying to do yep so i mean that's i feel like this you know this is all kind of basic stuff but honestly it's not something that you know people talk about necessarily whenever you're getting into shooting events or this sort of thing and like well what do you need to be thinking about to plan and like how many people you're working with and like not overshooting Mm and you know knowing what the edit's going to look like ahead of time and just all that planning is feels like soft skills that, you know, is a huge part of making, you know, shooting anything easier. It it took us a while to learn all that. And yeah, I mean, it's kind of like a hard one lesson for us and hopefully it makes it easier for somebody else. Cool. Is that, that's, that's pretty good. Is that everything on the event that we want to cover? I I think so. I think that that pretty much covers it. Okay, great. I got one more thing. All right, let's make it quick. What is this trident lamp thing that you have in the corner over here? It's, it's like, looks all, look blocky, like rectangles. Yeah. But it's three. Is it a lamp? It is a lamp. Yes. Interesting. It's like a trident, but if one of the legs was lower, what kind of do they have shades? What kind of bulbs do you put on that thing? Regular bulbs. I think I need to order shades for it. Hmm. This has been the lamp podcast. Yes. Yes. Now, now that we've brought everybody into our studio, yeah, visit, visit us uh, next week uh, when we're talking about uh, the new IKEA fixture. <laughs> we talked about the aperture event this week. We're going to talk about the IKEA event next week. Yeah. Here we go. Yeah. That's it for the show today. Thanks for listening. And we'd encourage you to rate the show on iTunes and tell a friend, but only if you enjoyed it. You can find out more about us on our website at cameragearpodcast.com. We'll be back with more next week.